along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Claire Gubbins of Dublin City University. Professor Gubbins is a professor of organizational behavior and human resource management at DCU and director of DCU's executive MBA program. She's an associate editor for Human Resource Development Quarterly and deputy director of the Link Research Institute, focusing on knowledge and learning. Claire is a member of the CIPD, the US Academy of Management, the Academy of Human Resource Development and the University Forum for Human Resource Development. She also works closely with the Irish Institute of Training and Development on a number of research projects. Awards for Claire's work are numerous and include a Fulbright scholarship to Carnegie Mellon University. Claire, it is great to speak to you. Hello, Lawrence. Um, Good to talk to you and thanks very much for having me here. An absolute pleasure. So perhaps you might start by telling us how can the term evidence-based be understood when we're talking about learning and development? The evidence-based perspective, which is about um, basically making more evidence-informed decisions in any field. It originated in the field of medicine so that um, medical practitioners were using best available, most up-to-date research in order to determine um, how to advise patients and and how to conduct surgeries, etc. It hasn't um, been something that was translated into management until recent years. Um, The idea being, again, that any manager, including learning and development professionals, should be using the best available evidence to make decisions rather than relying on evidence that that possibly has been passed down from person to person over the years and not reflecting what we now know to be um, the right, the, the better way, the more effective way to do things. So it's it's simply about making more informed decisions grounded in objective evidence and with the objective of removing as much bias as we can in our decision making. For L&D professionals, this essentially means doing some of what they already do and which we know that they already do which is being cognizant of the stakeholders in the business and their views on initiatives um, drawing on their own experience and other practitioners experience but then the other two elements are drawing on organizational data so we know that L&D professionals do use organizational data but the evidence-based um, decision-making approach would argue to draw on organizational data in a more integrated fashion. So for example, if you're designing a learning and development initiative that you're not just drawing on organizational data that's specific to learning and development, but that you're also drawing on data from possibly marketing, sales, finance, engineering, the strategic objectives of the business, and you're integrating all of that together to determine what is the best um, the best actions to take with an L&D initiative. And then the other element, which is a, a somewhat more challenging, is to draw on scientific evidence. So scientific evidence, basically, to, to you and me, is um, research that is 
typically con uh, conducted by um, academic bodies such as Dublin City University and, and universities all over the world and academics all over the world and some um, very well-renowned consulting bodies. And this scientific evidence is based on vast amounts of research that points to what we know to be initiatives that work, what elements of initiatives work, what elements of initiatives don't work, which can then guide L&D professionals in their design. Essentially, if I'm an L&D professional, I do not have the time to interview and survey and keep track of people over a number of years in order to determine what has worked and what hasn't worked. It's just too cumbersome and too time consuming. However, much some topics, some areas have been studied in that way by various academic and consulting bodies. And these that research is then and that is then available to LD professionals to make more informed decisions. Um, of course, the, the challenge there for L&D professionals is getting access to that scientific evidence because it typically lies in universities, in their databases or in journal databases, which are not necessarily always freely available. So, so there are some there are some challenges to L&D professionals being evidence based decision makers, drawing on those four sources of evidence and, and where we're, we're aware of that um, and we need to surmount them. But effectively, to, to go back to your question, that's that's what it's what it's about. So w without wanting to get too geeky, then you sort of mentioned scientific and data and, and different elements there. D does it in, in some ways relate to questions of reliability and validity of, of, of research and, and, and evidence process? Or is it a, a step step above that before we get that deep into it? Um, it's, it's both. I mean, I could send out a survey now, I could make up a few questions, send out a survey and try and get a sense of what's going on about something in my business, but that's not likely to be reliable. So when, when, um, scientific evidence is produced, it's put through rigorous peer review processes before it ever gets published, which basically means that if I am an L&D practitioner and I read a piece of science that tells me in order to design a good learning program, I should ensure to have these four um, elements in the program, then that science, that evidence is reliable and it is valid. Um, so it is a basis on which I know I can design my L&D initiative and that I can trust that it is more likely to succeed than if I simply design it on the back of a piece of paper off the top of my head or if I design it on the back of some quick survey that I just made up without any um, solid, reliable, validated um, instruments behind it. So it is, it, that is step one. About, it is about using evidence that has been checked for being reliable and valid and trustworthy. But it's also about... Um, the step up, as you mentioned, Lawrence, it's about collating that scientific evidence with the data from the organization, with the stakeholder views from the organization, with practitioner experience, because ultimately, while scientific evidence provides us with um, greater reliability and validity on the question that was posed on, on, on in that particular paper, for example, the 
the fact is that an L&D professional still needs to contextualize that. They still need to take into account the fact that I work in this type of an industry or the culture here is is in this is this type of culture um, or the stakeholders here have this type of expectation or the data in this organization seems to be guiding us in this direction. So it's not about using scientific evidence removed from the context that the L&D professional works in, their own organization. It's about marrying the two together so that you make an informed decision based on science, which is vast, but based on the context in which you work and, and marrying the two together. So the integration is 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 central to evidence-based decision-making for an L&D practitioner who works in an organization. And is that then, you know, returning to, to some of the points you, you made earlier, is that then the, the key to some of the challenges for you know, the, the everyday learning and development practitioner in an organization? That the science is so vast that the process could be so complex that it's, it is actually just easier to, to go with what I've always been doing or to go with what my professor taught me at university, no disrespect to professors, or or what my bosses told me I should be doing. Is that the core of, of some of the challenges? It is one of them. Um, so I'm part of a project that has started with the Irish Institute of Training and Development that is looking at that type of question. What are the challenges? That is one of the questions. What are the challenges that L&D professionals may be facing in terms of being more um, evidence-based in their decision making and that 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 can be one of them and it's one of them it's it's a challenge for any manager um, that we would like to see being more evidence-based relying on what my boss said because you respect your boss they are an expert they are a practitioner with experience so what they say is valuable but only um, should be taken in combination with those other sources that I mentioned. What the professor said is is valuable. What what year did they um, did they say it? Um, how old is it? Has anything happened? Has any research been done since then? Has the context in which we work changed? I mean, the perfect example now is is COVID, where we're in a context that none of us have any any. Uh, knowledge on any experience on and 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 very little data on so you can't expect somebody to know what to do in this context without some data so it, that is that is one of the challenges but there are there are, unfortunately there are a number of others and one of the most common ones that, that comes back is time like time to collate stakeholder views, organization data, analyze that data, collate practitioner experiences, and then read scientific evidence. We, you know, the argument that's, that's given to me is we don't have time for that. We need to make decisions fast and quick. And that comes back to one of the, the challenges that, that lie in this whole evidence-based management field. It, as I said, it came from the field of medicine. And the difference is, is that medical practitioners in their university training are trained how to be evidence-based um, medical professionals. So they're given the skills required to read scientific evidence quickly. In other words, to just scan and get the, the key insights and then move on. If any L&D practitioner is to pick up a, science, a scientific paper from um, an academic, they're cumbersome. They are difficult to, to get through and there's a lot in them. And effectively, there's a skill and, and it's about learning that skill 
of knowing which pieces of those documents to read just to get what you need to know. For example, the introduction generally tells you what the question is and then the, the implications for practice generally tell you and this is what you need to do if you're a practitioner in order to make use of this evidence. So just simple little tips like that which need to be fed out through our systems of education, our systems of training and through um, possibly new initiatives that L&D practitioners need to either um, introduce for themselves or to introduce for their employees around how to read um, scientific evidence. So that's that's one thing, one way of reducing the time um, challenge associated with using scientific evidence. Then there's the organisational data. So some of the challenges that would have come back to me would be well, we can get access to the, the data or we don't know where it lies. When, but the fact remains that for many organisations and not all, there is tonnes of data sitting in various databases scattered around various departments. And while there may not be um, a system in place in the organisation that pulls all that data together and integrates it in a nice, coherent fashion, it is possible to extract the data from wherever it lies and collate it yourself and, and analyze it or alternatively if somebody feels you know what I don't have the, the skills or the competency to do data analysis myself and I'm not talking about you know big sophisticated data analysis you can find out an awful lot about organizational data and what it's telling you in terms of designing L&D initiatives from very basic data analysis but anyway the the advice there is then don't, if you feel you're not competent or you don't want to be somebody who, who has data analytic competencies in, in L&D, then whom in the organization may have those competencies? So to find somebody who can be that data analytics person for you. Um, that can do the data analysis for you. Now, there are many arguments to saying that L&D professionals now do need to have data analytics competence and that is something that they should be developing because at the end of the day, an L&D professional is expected to be able to demonstrate their contribution to the, the business in numerical terms, in, in, in an evidence-based way. And it's very hard to do that if if you don't have some form of data analysis competence and the ability to read and understand basic data analysis. So while that is a challenge, it's also something that we would push that L&D professionals do need to, to engage with and develop themselves on to some degree. Um, so there, there, there are some of the challenges, um, Lawrence, but I think there are ways around them. Okay, we've kind of been talking quite a bit about, say, perhaps more 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 conceptual elements. But if we were to to really go down into specifics, what are some some common evidence based approaches that, that that you see emerging in organisations? But but equally on the flip side, what are, are some quite common approaches that you have seen that are actually not evidence based at all that are still hanging around in organisations? Um, again, so I'll. I'll... What's a practice what I preach, I'll draw on the evidence that I have about that question, which is only preliminary. So that study that we're doing with the Irish Institute of Training and Development, what that is illustrating um, and some other research that I'm aware of is that there are models, for example, of training evaluation, Kirkpatrick's model and Phillips model. But the reality is in organisations, evaluation is pretty much conducted 
at the level of reaction you know were, were trainees happy happy sheets were they happy with the the training and the learning programs um some evaluation conducted in terms of learning what did people learn there would be some bits of evaluation done in terms of people's behavior but what is not happening very much is um evaluation at the level of the extent to which a learning and development initiative is delivering a return on investment for the business or the extent to which a learning and development initiative is in, is facilitating key strategic or performance objectives and it goes back again to to what we've been talking about is it's because at that level it is about collecting harder evidence to answer that question it is about analyzing data to answer that question it is about integrating data from the L&D function with performance objectives which may lie across multiple functions or strategic objectives so it is about integrating data and so it is a more complex evaluation process but without it it is very difficult for an L&D professional to uh, objectively say this initiative worked this initiative delivered for the business and then it is very difficult for an L&D professional to sit at a c-suite boardroom table and say that they're making a contribution to strategic objectives performance objectives and the business um, because they don't have the the hard evidence to to rely on that's one of the the things that I suppose in terms of evidence-based decision-making that's still not happening despite the fact that those evaluation models are around a long time. And um, in the current world of work that we're in and organisations do now expect and um, CSUI do expect all functions to deliver um, in terms of the, the business objectives. Um, so L&D professionals, if they want to remain at the board table and be considered active, equal participants at the board table, then they need to be able to provide that evidence, whether it's in the form of the return on investment on an initiative and um, through evaluation or whether it's through being able to present evidence behind their proposed initiatives for helping the business move forward, drawing on, as I said, science, organizational data, views, practitioner experience. They need to be able to do one of the two. And I could sit here and say, or somebody could listen to this and say, that's just my opinion, but it's not because we have research that is still, unfortunately, and it upsets me to read it, highlighting <laughs> that L&D professionals are still struggling to be perceived and treated as genuine, active, strategic business partners. In some cases, they may be sitting at the, at the board level, they may be part of the C-suite, but they're responding reactively to whatever the organization is saying, and this is where we're heading, this, then they're responding reactively rather than proactively, rather than being equal partners. Um, there is still, the research is still saying that C-suite professionals whom are, whom are not L&D are still lacking trust in the L&D professional. Even if they are at the C-suite, there's a lack of trust. And one of those um, reasons for lack of trust, sorry, two of the reasons for lack of trust between those in the C-suite and L&D professionals are, what's the evidence that shows that you are making a contribution to the business? 
And the second one is business acumen. There's a belief that L&D professionals don't have the broader business acumen to be able to engage at a C-suite level. And the evidence-based perspective would provide that because if I, as an L&D professional, want to design an initiative, I'll give you an example here. If I want to design um, a learning and development initiative, while I may not be able to say, based on what we've done in my organization before, that this will work, or I know that this will work, and I may have no evidence to, pr- to back that up, what I could go to the C-suite with is there is scientific evidence that shows that if we design this L&D initiative with X, Y, and Z in place, we know it will lead to higher performance, then that that's a harder um, argument for C-suite to fight against than an L&D professional going to the C-suite saying, look, I'm designing it according to um, best practice. I'm designing it based on what I believe will work here. I'm designing it based on what somebody told me. That's easily argued against. That's, that's not easily defended. Whereas if you can say, so for example, to give you an example, um, which is quite useful now in COVID since we're all online, um, there is uh, meta-analytic evidence that talks about whether web-based or classroom training um, can be as effective as each other. And we're very familiar with classroom um, formats of training in L&D, and it, it, it's often our go-to. And the empirical scientific evidence on that space to date has identified that web-based and classroom learning can be as effective as each other because what matters is not the medium whether it's online or whether it's in the classroom what matters is the method so on condition that web-based training is designed with and there's four that the the evidence points to four components that need to be considered in the design and if these four components are put in place web-based and classroom instruction can be equally effective in delivering declarative or procedural knowledge and these are feedback so web-based needs to provide more feedback and provide more mechanisms for feedback than the classroom in order to account for that difference in medium web-based needs to be longer web-based needs to provide opportunities for practice there needs to be mechanisms in place to enable practice in a classroom instruction you can enable practice in the classroom but when in in web-based online instruction you need to think uh, more systematic systematically about how you can enable that practice to happen and the fourth one is trainee control Um, online instruction needs to give more greater consideration to how trainees can control their learning the pace of learning the content of learning the sequence of learning so if I'm an L&D practitioner, if I know that piece of information, that if I uh, design my online uh, initiative, bearing in mind I need to give more trainee control, greater feedback, have longer sessions, longer courses, sorry, and um, ensure I design to provide opportunity for practice, then the online medium can be as effective if not more effective than the classroom medium as long as the design conditions are in place so that's that's just one one example of how i can use scientific evidence to justify my de- my D design um in the absence of knowing in my own organization what will work and what won't 
And as you said, if L&D professionals are able to take that and, and use that evidence base, that scientific evidence base in an effective way, then there is an important step that they can take to becoming more strategic as a, as, as a partner, if you like, to, to the business and, and within the, the, the broader C-suite environment. So if, if we take that then, what would you suggest are some some more practical steps that learning and development practitioners could could take to become more more evidence based? Are there particular sources they can look at, particular you know journals, any particular aspects at all? Yeah, so there's a few things. So number one, there's the there's um, uh, the Center for Evidence Based Management. You can look it up online. Has some useful free resources that would give you the the opportunity to learn more about evidence-based practice and evidence-based decision-making and just get the key concepts without trying to turn into an academic or without trying to turn into a statistician. You just get the basics. The Another step is, and I've seen this in, in practice a lot because I have done a lot of research work with practice um, that was practice-led, is to be very clear up front on what is the problem or the question that you're trying to ask. I have um, myself experienced and I have my students have often told me about how you can sit in a meeting and have numerous people talking across purposes and giving suggestions that seem to be about completely different things. And it all boils down to something that seems simple, but is actually quite almost a skill in itself, which is being very clear from the outset what is the question you're trying to answer? What is the problem you're trying to solve? And then making sure that everybody in, that you're working with is clear on the question and the problem. So that's that's vital. In terms of getting uh, access to science, scientific evidence, there there is a problem there and it's something that um, university and industry need to work together better on in order to improve this. Because as I said, some of the scientific evidence is hidden behind university databases, college databases, uh, journal databases, and it's not necessarily free. However, there is more moves towards um, open access journals and open access papers, so some can, can be got. So, you know, is there a mechanism that your organization can get you access to some of these databases? Is there a mechanism where someone in your organization has access that you can go through them to get access to them? It's, it's kind of working around the problems that may exist there in, in that regard. Then there's the, I would argue, the need to either upskill as an L&D professional around data analysis and data analytics competence to, to either be able to do um, some basic analysis yourself or at the very minimum be able to understand outputs from data analysis. And if that is not something that you can do or want to do for whatever reason, then whom in your organization can be that source of expertise for you? That would be uh, something practical to, to do as well. And again, I mean, I think I have, I think I've, I've preached about it now at this point, but I am, I am so, I'm, I'm just so adamant that the, the, the value of science um, scientific evidence for LND is is just phenomenal um, but as I said I bear in mind the fact that it can be hard to get access to a lot of those articles and hard to to read them but it is valuable it's it's worth it and especially as I said if you scan it introduction implications for practice will, will get you halfway there because like 
I have seen L&D practitioners try to design initiatives that encourage training transfer, for example. And if you were to read uh, any learning development book or any consulting report that presents a model about what you should consider in designing any learning program, there are so many factors that that some are about the individual, their personality, their motivation, their their interest in the topic. Some are about the organization, the extent to which the organization supports L&D, the extent to which top management supports in L&D. And if you were, try, if you were, to, were to try to design a learning program to account for all those factors that could possibly influence its success, it would be a monster, an absolute monster. It just couldn't be done. And scient- the scientific evidence has shown us which of those factors have the biggest impact on performance and the success of an L&D initiative. So for example, um, the scientific evidence has found that three things, for example, have been particularly um, influential in predicting the performance and the success of an L&D initiative. And these are in terms of training transfer, and these are cognitive ability, so an individual's cognitive ability, their conscientiousness, and whether or not they're voluntary participants on a program. So if my concern is to ensure that training is transferred from a training program to the business, then there are three factors I should pay attention to. A person's cognitive ability, their conscientiousness, and um, the extent to which they're, they're voluntary participants. And then another one, and I'll, I'll stop then, is, you know, in this COVID context, what's more important now is people being proactive in their learning. Because like I said at another point in this conversation, no organization now is entirely equipped to know what's going to happen next and and how to respond and what we need to do so therefore no organization is entirely equipped to help figure out what people need to be trained in what lnd initiatives need to be pushed out there so what we really need now is employees who are capable of responding to whatever happens and learn how to learn as things happen who are learning agile who are adaptable who um, don't sit and wait for training and learning to be pushed at them but rather are able to keep up on their own um, devices and as I said are able to learn as they go and that points to people who have informal learning behaviors who are good at engaging in informal learning and proactive about engaging in informal learning so again an organization in this context could ask okay how do i improve um, the extent to which people will utilize informal learning behaviors and do it themselves because we don't really know what to to push in their direction well then again there's scientific evidence that that looks at that and it has identified that it is situational characteristics that are more important in determining the extent to which people will engage in informal learning and these are like things like job characteristics the extent to which somebody has autonomy in their job the extent organizational supports so things like reward um, and the resources available to a person so if i know that situational as opposed to individual characteristics are more important to in in terms of encouraging people to engage in informal learning then i can focus on the, the situational characteristics as opposed to training transfer, I know it's the individual characteristics. So little nuggets like that can take what seems like a monster in terms of designing the perfect L&D initiative 
and break it down into, well, these are the three things that have the biggest effect. So if we put these in place, it is more likely that the program will be um, successful. That all sounds great. Thanks so much, Professor Claire Govins, for your time and insights into evidence-based practice in learning and development. As we finish up, I should also mention that Claire's latest book, Learning and Development in Organisations, Strategy, Evidence and Practice, is available now and is published in association with the Irish Institute of Training and Development. It provides a comprehensive and thematic overview of the thinking, research evidence and practice of strategic learning and development in organisations. Claire, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. Our theme song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.